pray with me and join me in a word of prayer? Would you bow your heads and let's go before our Heavenly Father. And I'd like to direct this prayer, if I may. So I'm going to just invite you right now in, in, the, uh, uh, in this moment to just pour out your praise to him. Allow him to, to know that he is worthy. this quiet moment, could we just thank him for our circumstances, whatever they are? Just thank him in an attitude of gratitude. Say, thank you, God. I'm alive this morning. I, I've experienced your, your mercy of a new day, a beautiful day. I have the freedom to come and worship. Thank him for your circumstances. Friend, what is that one concern or care that you are burdened with today and you just need to pour it out to him? Would you do that right now? Just tell him your heart. Tell him where it hurts. Give it to him. As the Holy Spirit is speaking, would you confess your sin to him, whatever it might be? confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness thank him for that freedom thank him for for the joy of salvation create a oh lord a new and right spirit within me Would you have the courage this morning to pray for that one person that you are struggling most with? That person who <laughs> gets on your nerves. It's hard to curse someone when you have already blessed them. Will you pray for our nation this morning? All the complex situations, 
forthcoming election, Supreme Court nomination, all of these things come to mind. Would you just lift up our nation? Will you pray for your church, for us as a body, for your pastors? Pray for our vision and ministry. Father, I'm so grateful for your ministry here and for the community that is developing here. Lord, I want to take a moment to pray for the Greater New Beginnings Missionary Baptist Church right now. It uh, has a, a, a new, clean look, but Lord, I pray that even more graciously, Lord, you would pour out your spirit there. And the light of your grace would just overflow into that community. I thank you, Lord, that we were able to come together and accomplish much in a short time. Thank you, Lord, for the safety. And, and it was without incident in regards to people being harmed or hurt by ladders and foibles. But, Lord, you, you provided a means by which uh, uh, we were a witness. And we thank you for that. Pray for Pastor Michael today. Lord, as we open your word, open our eyes, our hearts, our minds to receive what you have, that we might uh, be conformed to your word and not to the world. I pray this in the beautiful and strong name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen and amen. Thank you. I'm going to invite you to turn with me. We're going to begin a new series of messages over these next few weeks. Uh, but I'm going to begin in Philippians chapter 3. I'll invite you, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Uh, it, the words will also be, the scripture will also be on the screen. Uh, Philippians 3, we're going to begin with verse 17 in deference to God's word. Let's, let's stand and I will read this. The Apostle Paul is writing, and this is what he writes. He says, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have made us a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. 
May God add his blessing to that word. You can be seated. As we begin this series, I want to just outline this fact that the New Testament develops a theme that is very consistent, that followers of Jesus are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. We see it here in Philippians 3. For many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. In other words, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their, their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, the apostle says. So what Paul is telling us is in this world, there are those who are set against the cross. But their idols are, are comfort, their satisfaction, their own sense of well-being. They think they have found glory, but in fact, it is their shame. But Paul writes, but our citizenship, that's the people in this room who follow Jesus, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a, sa uh, eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no Savior except Christ alone. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul declares, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens uh, with God's people and also members of the household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. We who follow Christ are citizens with the saints. We are members of the household of God. Our citizenship, our loyalty, our rulership comes from heaven. The implication then of that statement is extraordinary in that they radically transform the view, our view of this present world and how we're supposed to live in it. Of course, I don't have to tell you that our nation is going through all kinds of chaos right now. Our nation has been suffering from this COVID pandemic. We see wildfires in the West, hurricanes in the South. It's almost so bad that Cleveland looks like a pretty decent place to live, if you think about it. But even beyond these natural disasters, we've had a series of person-to-person -person disasters the killing of George Floyd by a police officer this summer unleashed a cauldron of resentment and bitterness. And of course, other incidents followed in Kenosha, Wisconsin. You had Jacob Blake protests throughout the summer. Two weeks ago, we saw in Los Angeles two members of the police department brutally shot by a still as yet unknown assailant. This week, we've had the issues in Louisville surrounding the killing of Breonna Taylor and the subsequent shooting of two police officers. Riots have become the norm in some cities. And of course, I'm just hitting the tip of the iceberg of all that's going on. Now this morning, I think it's our responsibility to continue to reflect and wrestle with what God wants to say to our nation and to us as a church in the midst of this turmoil. I don't know about you, but I still need a word from God. What does the Bible say about what is going on in these days? And of course, there is a part of me that says, Jeff, just be quiet. Leave it alone. Stop talking about the world. Let's just have a nice little worship service because these problems, they're not our problems. But God continues to say to me, and I think 
he would say to us, because things are going okay in your little world doesn't mean that things are going okay in my world. Now, I've been thinking a lot about this. You see, a long time ago in Israel, there were these characters that arose that were called prophets. They were unique figures in the ancient world. They, they spoke to Israel and they placed a kind of a gift and a kind of a burden on Israel that no other people had experienced. And their proclamations were often very heavy. They said, there's a way it is supposed to be in the world. There's a way that our world is supposed to run and to work. And this is God's will. And God will, in fact, hold human beings accountable to that way. And they would announce their proclamations that what, what God had in store, in store for them. Well, one of the prophets, of course, was a man named Isaiah. For instance, in Isaiah 11, he declared, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. Now you remember Jesse. He was King David's father. The prophet is saying, In the line of David, there is coming a ruler, a leader. And Isaiah says, The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and power, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. And then he portrays this picture of the way things are supposed to be. Israel knew this as shalom, God's peace. And Isaiah reports, the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the, uh, the hole of the cobra and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So Isaiah says there's a way that things are supposed to work in this world. And by the way, that empowers the church for the church to be able then to step back and with authority and conviction be able to speak to the world. And we can with authority then say there are some things that are wrong. We can say, listen, with, with violence against our neighbor is wrong. When we see justice, injustice perpetrated by police or authority, it is wrong. But violence against the police and authorities is wrong too. Those things break God's heart. And so we know this. We can say racism is wrong. Hatred is wrong. 
Injustice is wrong. When love does not define our relationships with one another, it is wrong. But listen to this. For me to put my head in the sand and just be concerned about my little life is wrong too. It's wrong because those things violate God's will for how things are supposed to be and how we're supposed to treat one another. Friends, as the church, we have to take responsibility then for what is happening in our world. Now, this is where I get some pushback. Why do we have to take responsibility? I must admit that very often this has been my own response. But this is where the Lord has been speaking to me and showing me some very important things in these days. The other night, our Racial Reconciliation Task Force was meeting, and we heard Phil Vischer, who some of you may know was the voice and creator of uh, the VeggieTales, but he, he uh, has done some videos that I think are quite well done. And he said this. He was making an argument, and he said, Wait a minute here. I never owned slaves. I didn't redline communities. I don't discriminate in my workplace. I am not racist. Why do I have to take responsibility? I didn't do any of these things. And then he countered with this. He said, as Americans, we often say, we put a man on the moon. We defeated Hitler. We won the Cold War. We horribly mistreated Native Americans for centuries. And he says, hey, wait, I didn't do that one. And he makes the point, you didn't do any of those things. In other words, we love to take collective ownership of the great things America has done, but we completely reject any ownership of the terrible things America has done. The Bible talks about individual sin and individual repentance. And as highly individualistic Westerners, we get that. It makes sense to us. I'm responsible for my stuff, my sin. But if you are a student of scripture, you will quickly come to realize that the Bible also talks about corporate sins, societal sins, and corporate repentance. Multiple times in the Old Testament, we see all of Israel held to account and called to repent of sins that not every individual committed. Furthermore, in Daniel, if you read the, the Bible, in Daniel, he prays a prayer in Daniel 9 of repentance for the sins of his forefathers, which he did not commit. In the, Nehemiah, we see Nehemiah do the exact same thing. So Vischer notes, he says, we don't like the idea of taking responsibility for sins we did not commit. It isn't very American, but it is very biblical. That, for instance, is why abortion is such a problem for us. But what about, then, then it sounds like we are making America to be a terrible place. And of course, there's a, there's, a, there's, there, there's a reaction to that. And no, no, here's the point. 
America is good and bad, virtuous and sinful, selfless and selfish. Why? Vischer says, because America is us, and we are all those things. I am all those things. You see, that's what makes our problem so complex. What's wrong with America isn't out there someplace. What's wrong with America starts in here, in me. The Soviet dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote these words. He said, if only it were all so simple. If only there were these evil people somewhat insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? So what we have to understand is part of what's wrong with the world is in fact what's wrong with me. That's why we take responsibility. That's why we have to take responsibility for what is happening in our world in this time. That's why we have to be careful today with extremisms in any form. You see, the, the great thing about extremism is it provides you enemies. And the great thing about having enemies is is that you can pretend that all the badness in the whole world is in your enemies. And all the goodness in the world is in you. And that's pretty attractive. Yeah, it's all about them and what they're doing. And it keeps the responsibility off of me. But I would submit to you that Jesus shows us another way. Remember, we follow him. We listen to him. He is our ruler and our leader. He is our Lord. And so when Jesus walked in the flesh on this earth, there was tremendous tension, you remember, and conflict in his day around ethnicity and justice, in particular between Israel and Rome. On the one hand, you had people in Israel that were called the Zealots. They were Israelites who were tired of Roman oppression and occupation and years of of, uh, invasion, and they called for a violent overthrow of Rome. Now, it's worth considering and taking a note that Jesus knew knew way more about what it means to be a victim of oppression and injustice than I will ever know. He knew what that felt like. He saw it every day. For instance, when he was a little boy, a ruler named Herod wanted to kill him. And destroy his family just because he was a little Jewish Jewish boy that could be a threat to his throne. His family, you'll remember, had to live when he was very small as unwanted immigrants in another country. And when he grew up, it was the Roman officials who harassed him and Roman soldiers who unjustly arrested him. 
So Jesus knew all about that kind of pain. And yet it's interesting to me, he invited one of the zealots to be a part of his disciple group. You remember Simon? The zealot. So Jesus lived with that. But then on the other hand, one day a man came to Jesus for help. Only this man came to Jesus for help. He was a Roman soldier, a Roman centurion. It's a hard thing to be a Roman soldier in Israel. They had to maintain Roman law and order in a place that they were mostly hated. Most of the Roman soldiers were not actually from Rome. They were from Syria or some other nearby place near to Israel. But Jesus said to this man, I will help you. Jesus creates another way. But it's a good time to reflect on this. There was tremendous pressure on Jesus. Hey, Jesus, which side are you on? Are you on the zealot side? There's a lot of injustice. There's a whole lot of oppression. There's a lot of persecution. Rome is exploiting us. They are making us poor. They are holding us down. They are killing us. You better be on the zealot side, Jesus. Or Jesus, are you on the soldier's side? We need law and order. There's a special term for the Roman law and order of the day, the Empire Rome. It was called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. It kept the, the, the people from killing each other. And those soldiers are putting their lives on the line every day to keep that order. You better be, Jesus, on the soldier's side. But you know, there was another group who said, you know what, let's just withdraw from the whole daggone thing. There's actually a community in Jesus' day called the Essenes. And they retreated near the Dead Sea. And we know a little bit about this, if you know anything about the Dead Sea Scrolls. But they made their own little religious enclave. Basically, they were saying, let's go be safe. Let's go escape. Let's have our nice little lives, our nice little careers, our nice little children, and our nice little families. And let them, let them process uh, or protest somewhere else. Let them march someplace else. Let somebody else figure out these problems. It's not my problem. It has nothing to do with me. So where did Jesus stand? Well, from what I can tell in scripture, Jesus said, I will love the zealots. I'm going to recognize their humanity. I'm going to listen to their hurt. I will care about their pain. I will treat every one of them with dignity and respect as an individual created in the image of God. And Jesus said, I will love the Roman soldier too. I will recognize their humanity. I will listen to their requests for help. I will realize that not every one of them is a despised pagan, but somebody that bears the image of God. 
You know, when Jesus was crucified, it was a Roman soldier who was the first human being in history to testify after his death, truly this man was the Son of God. The very man who may have been responsible for putting the nails in his hands and feet, who stood guard that day beside the cross, was so amazed at what he saw in Jesus. His love, his strength, his compassion, his forgiveness came to the conclusion, surely this man was the son of God. Church, when things are going bad, when things are tough, when things are not going our way, that's when the church should most look like Jesus. And people should say, surely, they are the children of God. Jesus said, I will not choose the zealots and count Romans as my enemies. I'm not going to choose the Romans and Make the soldiers to be, or make the zealots my enemies. I will not withdraw like the Essenes into a little bubble of safety. I'm going to immerse myself in the middle of all this pain, all this anger, all this confusion, armed with one thing the love of my Heavenly Father. Now, was that easy for Jesus? Think about it. After Palm Sunday, after Palm Sunday, it was clear that Jesus was not going to become a political messiah. He wasn't going to take up the sword. He wasn't going to overthrow Rome. So the people who were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna on Palm Sunday by Friday were crying what? Crucify him. He's not on our side. Oh, by the way, what did the other side do? Well, after Palm Sunday, when the word came down from the authorities, the Roman soldiers arrested Jesus. They beat him, they mocked him, they whipped him, and they executed him. That's the way of the cross. And friends, I think that Jesus has shown us the way. And I think God would say to us this morning, I believe he says to his church, if you're going to follow Jesus in this world, don't expect easy. Now you're like me, I want easy. (laughs) I want comfortable. You know, that old easy button kind of a thing. Just push that and it all comes together. I want to be able to, to wrap it up with a hashtag or an election, or a Supreme Court nomination. Just make it easy. I don't want to be troubled by hard questions that are confusing to me. I don't want to have to take responsibility. I don't want to have to listen to others. I just want to tell you, if you're looking for easy, you pick the wrong Lord to follow. Because Jesus doesn't do easy. Jesus says, deny yourselves. Jesus says, take up your cross daily. Follow me. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. You see, Jesus does love. And Jesus does hope. Jesus does faith. But Jesus doesn't do easy. He never has. 
And don't be surprised if the life he's called you to is not going to be easy. As a church, I am so tempted to say, why just can't we have our little services, enjoy our little community, sing our little songs and learn how to raise our little families and manage our little careers? But we simply can't do that because that is not our God. That's not our Savior. That's not our gospel. It doesn't allow for that. We are called by God to recognize and care about the dignity and worth of every human being. Many of them we will never meet. We have to listen. We have to learn. We have to lament every death, every struggle, every question, and wrestle with things like racial injustice and Stand for life from the womb to the tomb. All of it. Shalom. God's peace. Why? Because God said so. Because in Christ there is no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, us versus them, the insider versus the outsider, all are one in Christ Jesus. He died so that he could form a new humanity. His purpose was to create in himself a new humanity. So I believe that Jesus died for times like this. Listen, friend, he has not called us to be consumers of the good life or architects of our careers or opinionated ideologues of one political stripe or another. He has called us to be agents of reconciliation, ambassadors of light and love, to pray faithfully, sacrifice generously until the day finally comes when people will neither harm nor destroy on God's holy mountain and the earth will all be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. That's God's word. That's God's purpose. That's our challenge. Let's pray together. Father, I wish you'd let me preach something else from time to time. And yet within me stirs this hope, Lord, that this season will be a moment and a period when your church will rise up and be different. And Lord, we will not go to the right or to the left, but we will follow you as Lord alone. You are our Savior. Lord, we pray that the, the evidence of your righteousness will be found here in our community and that others would look to us and be drawn to you because they see love, they see the light, they see, Lord, people who are willing to engage others' pain and understand, Lord, imperfectly, certainly. But, Lord, we have been given a grand opportunity in this day live as people and citizens of heaven. Lord, I, I pray that uh, our, that citizenship would cause us to consider how we can make a difference, how we can love those who feel unloved. 
how we can stand for life from the womb to the tomb. May we experience your shalom. Father, convict us of those things that have caused us to, 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 sway, to stray from that, from that one purpose. Lord, if there is someone today that has not experienced the power and the blessing of the cross, I pray that you would, would encounter them, engage them. And Lord, may we all, because we know what the cross means to us, we know that the cross brought us freedom But, Lord, we are also called to pick up that cross. And, Lord, in our day, allow for justice and build bridges. And, Lord, uh, even through our sacrifices, Lord, uh, bring, bring a wholeness to the world that does not yet exist. Lord, thank you that you call us to be great, not necessarily in the world's eyes, but in your eyes. Lord, help us not to simply sit back and be consumed by our stomachs, be content with our careers and our little world. But instead, Lord, challenge us to make a difference. Thank you, Lord, for the way we saw that even this weekend in Slavic Village. Lord, may those efforts increase. I pray this through Christ our Lord.